Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm in the offices of Journalism, Media and Communications at the University of Stockholm. And I'm going to begin the way I do with all people I converse with here in Sweden, even though this is somebody who doesn't have a Swedish name, and check that I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Sure. So how about if I try this? I say, Miase Christensen. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. That's okay. Absolutely. All right. yes. What are the different versions that you get of pronouncing your name from around the world? Maes. Especially English speakers. Right? Maes. 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 Oh, I like that. Maes. Miase. Miase. Yeah. But the thing is, my mom always called me Mia. <laughs> that was her version, which, you know, flies perfectly fine here. And your mom's Greek. Right. Um, of Greek origin, exactly. My father's side were from Russia, and this was my um, grandmother's name, my father's mother. But it is a ve- very unusual name, <laughs> which my mom apparently never heard before, so she always called me Mia. So. so in Turkey, is it common or no? Mia no, it's not. No. no. So I know, know that it exists, but I never met another one. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. but it's there. So here you are in Sweden, and they can say your name better than a lot of Anglo's can. And you've uh, just drawn my attention to an article that you co-authored that's in the latest issue of Le Monde Diplomatique, mm-hmm. uh, which is a fantastic, if people don't know it, a fantastic monthly publication that mm-hmm. comes from uh, connection to the French daily newspaper Le Monde. It used to be connected... I think also to the Guardian and the New York Times, but now right. it's it just is. Le Monde that it runs is. Le Monde Diplomatique for whatever reason. I don't know what the reason is for that, but it's great. And you see it on newsstands. It's also available. I sound like I'm doing a commercial here. Um, no via really iPads possible. and you name it. Right. And it's a great, great monthly. Uh, tell us about this new piece, if you could. Mm-hmm. Well, it has been co-authored by my colleague, Libby Robin, from... Um, KTH Royal Institute of Technology. She's also a guest professor there, like myself, and she's from Australia, and she's a museum scholar, Uh historian. And Nina Muller, she is a curator from Munich. And what it has to do with is the fact that, well, actually we started that discussion in New York in October last year, 2013, when we attended this event called Collecting the Future, or Collecting for the Future. Uh How do we communicate climate change, species going extinct, and all sorts of other environmental issues to the future generations? And Mm -hmm. it was primarily an event um, organized by those folks who are in museum studies and, and who are historians. And Libby and I started that discussion there, talking about, uh, I was talking about fast and furious media, you know, the media that we know, that we deal with as media (laughs) communication scholars. And then she said, well, then we can call museums slow media. That's how that discussion started. Mm, And it has to do with the fact that the media, um, over the last decade, we could say, is doing relatively a better job in communicating climate change and environmental destruction at least certain media, but on the whole, of course, there is um, um, news cycles, issue fatigue, and and all that, and uh, the whole discussion was based upon how museums and that kind of media or medium is doing a better job actually in communicating climate change, which is a meta-event 
that is overarching mm. over decades mm. and, and, and scopes and scales, etc. So that's what this piece has to do with. And in that one, we are talking about you know um, recent exhibitions in Munich. Uh, the one coming up in December. It's going to open in December. Um, the, it's, it is called Welcome to the Anthropocene. And some other museum pieces and exhibitions and we are comparing it to the ways in which the media are covering um, climate change and one of the examples I give in that particular article is people's climate march how it was widely covered in the media but at the same time only certain aspects from certain angles were covered the fact that there were labor unions for instance Hurricane Katrina survivors, indigenous groups who were at the march, those were sort of on, on the sidelines. What was uh, what made the headlines was basically what we expected, that it was like a sort of a big march, big demonstration, and in a few days uh, it disappeared. But with media like museums, of course, there is you can have an exhibition communicating climate change with objects um, on a longer term. But of course then the issue arises, well, museums are catering to a certain crowd. So could we say that, they, well, you know, we're preaching to the crowd. That was one of the things actually that we had been discussing with my colleagues. And Mrs. Levy's uh, take on that is that, well, yes, it is the case that they are catering to a certain crowd. Maybe we could say they are preaching to the choir, but at the same time, isn't it also the case that that is the crowd that matters, that is um, influence on policy and, and, and politics, etc. But of course, there is no easy answer to this. Mm. We could discuss this all night and uh, arrive sure. at different conclusions. Uh, so obviously, the media we know, the fast and furious, whatever, or the slow media, which uh, one example of which are museums are doing different jobs and catering to different audiences, some of which, of course, overlap. Um, but the point in that article is that the media uh, today could learn a little more from slow media in communicating something as big um, and grave as, as climate change and environmental destruction. Mm. Absolutely. Beyond um, mediatizing events or covering the issue only during when it becomes an event, so to speak, yeah. during um, when there's a disaster, when there's a disaster, or when there's a new or... intergovernmental panel on climate change report, exactly. Right. So, speaking of that, tell us a little bit about your choice of venue to write this piece in Le Monde Diplomatique, where I guess you're, it's probably what a thousand words, fifteen hundred words. It is. Well, actually, what happens with, with uh, popular publications, as you very well know yourself, is that you send them 2,000 words and they cut it down to 1,000. <laughs> and then you end up uh, adding a little more, so it has to be a, a popular piece. But, yeah, of course, you could make the same argument there, that why Le Monde Diplomatique? Why not a more uh, popular or more accessible um, or, more, or less elite uh, outlet? But the thing with Le Monde is that they give open access. Yeah. At least it has been the case whenever I publish with them, and we are able to circulate it through social media and other venues. Oh, really? no, I, and, I and it is sort of it is it is reaching yeah. to a um, certain audience. I didn't mean it critically, actually, mm -hmm. um, because I think that 
people who are in the in a position to become part of the oligarchy right. or people who are in a position to change the dominant ideas right. or to share them mm. down the pike are valuable readers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it's great that you choose to publish there because the liberal left elite, and it's not really a social elite, but it's an elite educationally in terms Certainly. of cultural capital. Right doesn't have all the information at its fingertips that you're providing, um, nor the information that's provided by other authors in mm -hmm. an outlet like that. So I think it's terrifically valuable, uh, actually. I think it's really, really good. I meant not so much in contradistinction to publishing in The Sun, <laughs> you know, or The New York Post, right. but rather actually as an exercise in mm -hmm. making things available. Um, do you try to do that regularly? Do you see that as part of your mission as an intellectual, I suppose? Uh, yes, absolutely. And unfortunately, I don't do enough of that. And I think we all need to do more of that. Because scholarly publications are books, journal articles, what have you. I mean, of course, those are very important um, part of our job and, 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 and the ways in which we produce uh, research output. But in terms of reaching the public, I think it's absolutely important to publish in, in popular um, venues. Mm -hmm. Not only publications like Le Monde, but in, in other ways as well. But I mean, as I said, one, one advantage with that is, first of all, you're reaching maybe a certain uh, faction of the population. And sometimes, depending on what the article is about, it, it, it does, uh, it gets picked up by other venues. The mm -hmm. last one I published a few years ago about surveillance and social media for instance, was uh, taken up by New York Times, etc., and and other sort of non-profit mm. publications from Australia to Greece, actually. So that that's the sort of advantage of publishing in these uh, venues, being able to reach audiences that we would not be able to reach otherwise with our scholarly publications. So it is very important, yes. Now, just getting back to the subject matter of right. your latest piece mm -hmm. in Le Monde Diplomatique, I know that you've been part of a series of very innovative collaborations on mm -hmm. the topic of climate change for some time. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could share with us a bit of that work. Right. Um, one project that just ended yes, uh, yesterday, well, yesteryear, last year, <laughs> uh, was funded by one of the research councils in Sweden called FORMAS which is a funding agency for um, research that focuses on a certain region. And that one had to do with Arctic climate change. And it was a truly interdisciplinary project involving myself as a media and communication scholar, historians, um, climate modelers, international relation experts. And I would say of all the projects that I worked uh, with and in so far and everything I've done so far in my career, that was the most uh, stimulating and challenging project that I've taken part in. Not only because of the subject matter at hand that I uh, you know, feel it at heart, climate change, but also because of the fact that we really involved interdisciplinarity in, a, in the real sense of the word. Mm -hmm. And it was not easy. It was, we learned a lot from each other. I think at times we fought. <laughs> we 
we put together an edited volume which took longer than any other that I've done so far because it was, you know, we had to be so meticulous. We, we, were, we had to be able to communicate to each other across our disciplinary boundaries. But at the end, I think it was very um, worthwhile. And I learned from a lot from that. And I have a current project that I got funding for with my colleague Anika Nielsen from Stockholm Environment Institute. And that one has to do with Arctic governance, politics of scale, and the changing geopolitics of the region. How do you govern a region like the Arctic? The Arctic not being a country, obviously, with lots of vested interests from corporate to, um, to nation states, etc. And what is fit governance? That is sort of like following from that kind of um, research, but it is more specific. But in the previous one, which uh, the outcome which we, of which, as I told you, is an edited volume, um, I think the interesting thing, the most interesting thing that I learned, and, and my colleagues perhaps as we worked together, was to um, communicate to each other first and foremost about how we frame this issue. Did you have different vocabularies? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what were the trials? And it was most devices? obvious. I mean, you could say, okay, social scientists and humanitarians, you know, we still speak the same language, obviously, but, you know, we had climate scientists, and uh, to them, they would say, well, why not uh, emphasize variability? When we were discussing about the fact that, you know, um, in the media particularly, you need more alarmist metaphors or... Um, more discourse along the lines of tipping points for the broader public to understand. And of course, from a scientific point of view, people who model climate change, deal with scientific data as such, um, to them, variability is a very important um, terminology. But of course, when you translate that into popular terms, if there's variability, well, maybe it's not so bad. Right. You know, if there is variability, it's, 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 uh, it's the ice is melting one year, maybe yeah. it's going to, you know, uh, form again next year, so maybe yeah. it's not that bad. So it is very difficult to um, stay true or loyal yeah. to scientific tenets, but at the same time be able to communicate that uh, to the broader public. Yeah. Yeah. But so it also has to do with, of course, our own disciplinary uh, boundaries, how we understand these things in social sciences and humanities and how... Um, scientist from a scientific perspective understands and tries to communicate what the what exactly is happening. Now given that struggle, mm -hmm. what was it about the collaboration that made you say that this was perhaps the most rewarding project you've been involved in? Well it is the biggest challenge uh, we are facing <laughs> ever, I would say particularly here and now um, on the planet. The fact that the planet is uh, not doing so well and we need more understanding, not only in sciences, across sciences, social sciences, humanities, and, and natural sciences, but also um, in terms of public understanding. And what we are arriving at, I think, not only as a result of our own particular project, which was located here, but in general, is the fact that we need interdisciplinarity more than ever to be able to understand grasp and, 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 and communicate what's happening um, to the environment and, and, and to climate. So what and that, that is a big challenge. It's not easy right. to break uh, those boundaries. Uh, and we can name a number of reasons why. Why not? 
What does that mean in terms of the sorts of things we should be studying and teaching? So, for example, as you know, mm -hmm. there's a subdiscipline called science communication. Right. And there are plenty of communications corporations that operate within particularly medicine mm -hmm. to write, in inverted commas, medical journal articles that are actually basically somewhat spurious announcements of clinical trials on behalf of pharmaceutical corporations that are looking for approval from the Food and Drug Authority Agency mm -hmm. in the United States, Drug Administration, sorry, in the United States. Mm -hmm. But what is it that we should be doing as scholars, as intellectuals, as students, as readers, uh, to get this conversation going? So, for instance, if you're teaching Communications 101, right. or you're a student in Journalism 1000, whatever we call these things, mm -hmm. is the environment there? Is it there in the same way as gender is, the same way race is? Does it have a week? It Do you see be. what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, for race and gender, for them to enter our vocabulary, it took a while. It took decades. An environment, obviously, is a very crucial one, more than ever. And it has to make a very fast entry, because we didn't have uh, decades to sort of uh, massage that into our vocabulary. Oh. And only now, I think, we are realizing how, how crucial and important it is. And I think it has to be there as, 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 as crucially or as uh, evidently as race and, and, and gender. Mm. And I think a scope, a scholarly scope, as environmental humanities would serve that um, quite well to sort of bring that into every discipline and also to be able to cross those disciplinary boundaries, which is not an easy one, obviously. It's not going to happen overnight. You could say, well, there might be some problems with that perspective, but nevertheless, one way or the other, depending, regardless of uh, what kind of uh, paradigm we're looking from or through or what kind of epistemological stance we're taking, it has to be there. Now. This implies some autodidacticism or some assistance to learn things anew. Yes. What's it like for you reading a science article? An article in Nature or Science? Mm -hmm. A natural science article. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it easy for you? Do, do you have to rethink things? Do you feel confident in judging between differing perspectives? How do you go about it? And what, what, would, what does that imply for the rest of us who might be part of this environmental humanities you're describing? Because it requires a different kind of literacy, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. It's like reading a new kind of theory. Absolutely. A different epistemological position, mm -hmm. a different methodological one in many cases, depending on one's intellectual background. It, it does require a new form of literacy mm -hmm. and relearning how to understand it. And, and, and I cannot... Obviously, you need another degree to be able to really grasp and to be able to judge a scientific article. Otherwise, we would be undermining our colleagues saying, well, yeah, I can take a literacy course in natural sciences and next day I can uh, read and understand and, and evaluate, your, evaluate your article. It's, it's not as simple as that, of course, but, um, but that, that's where the value of co collaboration is. We right. need to be able to learn and relearn and understand and develop that kind of literacy, but that doesn't mean we need, I will get another degree in, in, in natural sciences, in, in climate science or biology or whatever that might be. I think we need to be able to, at, at, at a certain level, 
understand, grasp, and communicate what we read from other disciplines, but we need each other, of course, to be able to work together in projects yeah. like this, meaning I don't need another degree in climate science or biology, and they shouldn't need another degree in, in social uh, theory because or, or we communications. We can work together. That's the second level of learning, I think. So that involves two steps, or three steps, rather. Mm -hmm. One, relearning or learning to understand something or output from another discipline to learning to work with each other across our disciplinary boundaries and three putting it all together as a result of this and producing new knowledge and that's not easy Does and that that could be like an edited volume or an article together and communicating to the public that that's maybe the fourth level which is also very important there's an irony here too isn't there in that at one level what these folks want is normativity they want a shift in normativity. Right. At another level, they want to be true to science. So they're saying to you, how can we deliver the normative message effectively? Mm -hmm. And by the way, we want to stress variability because we're scientists. But that's one of the things we, we argued about a lot during uh, this project yeah. and when we were putting this uh, volume together. And of course they are right. From their perspective, and if they employ the kind of normativity they do in their... Um, scientific output, then they say, well, I mean, the way you put it is not the way I would put it in a scientific article. So you're like, you know, then in that sense, you are compromising normativity um, in their discipline. But if you do the opposite, then you are compromising in your discipline. So it's, it's, it's a way of finding uh, ways to communicate. But also, there is a normative message they want to get out, which is, this is scary. It's appalling. Life would come to an end. Mm -hmm. Right? That is their, that, as opposed to the norms of their discipline. Absolutely. That is their normative message to the world, right? right? By and large, 99% mm -hmm. mm -hmm. of them. Really, so-called climate skeptics tend not to have qualifications in these fields any right. more than I do. But their way of doing it requires averages and probabilities mm -hmm. and models which are competing. Mm -hmm. And that is science, right? So that is, I think, the difficulty that you're describing. Right. You know? Absolutely. I, and I think it becomes more of an issue when you're communicating all this to the public. Yeah. It's one thing if you're dealing with each other as scholars, regardless yeah. of what kind of fields we're coming from, social sciences, humanities, versus or alongside uh, natural sciences, we can still produce knowledge together. And, and, and that's one part of the challenge. But of course, if you are sort of trying to distill all that you produce together, uh, to be able to communicate that to the public, that's another challenge. That's, that's maybe the trickier bit. To, to stay true to knowledge and science and at the same time be able to efficiently and effectively communicate to the public to make social change, if that's the goal. If that's the goal. Yes. And of course, Which it should be the goal in the case of what we're talking about. It's essential, isn't it? In, in I mean, there are policy implications that flow very directly from mm -hmm. what these folks have found out, and they are life-altering. Absolutely. And that is the, uh, mm -hmm. the extraordinary reality you're dealing with. In terms of the Arctic, mm -hmm. what have been the major foci that you guys have engaged in? What has been the principal points of analysis for you. Right. It has been um, what we call the sea ice minimum. Mm -hmm. When the sea ice extent uh, in all these things also I myself learned uh, during the course of this. Uh, you don't say sea ice volume, but you say 
see how it's extended, so it would have been When it reached its minimum point in 2007, and then in 2012, but we started the project in 2008, so this was before the second sea ice minimum. So what happened was, that was a major turning point actually um, in science and also in public understanding of what was happening with climate change, because climate models were indicating that the ice was melting at a slower pace. And what happened in 2007 was that satellite data showed that it was actually melting much faster than predicted before and that's when you know we reached that point of sea ice minimum which made the headlines of course it quickly became a media event so to speak that's when we started to see um, polar bears floating on a little piece of ice and of course on the upside we could say that was very effective because journalists for decades talked about how difficult it is to communicate climate change because it is it's an abstract thing you need to sort of be able to visualize it and the ozone hole actually is a good example of that because that you can visualize that's something the public can relate to and that's something as a journalist you can communicate more easily than greenhouse effect as it was formerly called or global warming or all these other um, terms we had in relation to climate and environmental change. So in many ways the Arctic sea ice minimum, minimum followed by the 2012, which was even lower uh, in extent than 2007, were very important turning points uh, or tipping points, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And what I did for this project, for my part as a media communication scholar, was to look at the coverage of these uh, events in quotation marks in, in, in certain newspapers like The Guardian, New York Times, and the Swedish newspaper Dagens Nyheter, which is basically um, another left-wing elite newspaper like The Guardian. And what we saw there was uh, what we talk about actually in our edited volume, uh, When the Ice Breaks is the name of the volume, mm. is, well, I, I conceptualize it under two terms. One is topical multiplicity and the second is scalar transcendence. Because what I saw, at least in relation to the coverage of this particular phenomenon, or phenomena, the two of them, 2007 and 2012, was that the issue became um, a more complex one in its coverage. It was not anymore just an issue that is debated within the scientific community, whether it exists or not in relation to the sea ice uh, minimum, the Arctic sea ice minimum, the coverage indicated that there was, well, okay, this is this could be a tipping point, actually, that this could, this could be uh, the point of no return. And it was discussed, at least in these uh, newspapers, in relation to cultural, social, and political frames, and also in relation to the local people and what is happening in these localities. And scale, that, that is sort of with this dimension I labeled uh, topical multiplicity. And the second one was scalar transcendence, meaning this region, which is a local region, that maybe we did not pay so much attention to uh, the preceding decades, all of a sudden became the bellwether for global climate change. And that sort of transcendence between scales, the local became becoming an indicator for global change and, 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 and global, global processes having to do with what's happening in the Arctic. 
So that was, I think, I would say the interesting, one of the interesting findings of this uh, part of the research. But of course, in 2010, after all this, we the coverage went down. It dipped so badly that it went, it dipped 70%, if I remember correctly. So it went to the level that it was before we had the Arctic sea ice minimum. And that, that's predictable, of course. That's what happens in the media. There were other issues. <laughs> Later came the Arab Spring and all that, so it was like faded, faded. Mm-hmm. But it also, it is also the case that September of each month, when the sea ice minimum is measured in the Arctic. I was just asking you, Miasa, mm-hmm. about the way in which we might think about these climate change issues you've raised in the context of capitalism and particularly economic growth seen as necessary for the maintenance of a welfare state, mm-hmm. for the prospect of elder care, child care, full employment, however that's defined at a particular moment and place and so on. Mm-hmm. So I wondered about where capitalism comes into this discussion for you, for your collaborators within communication studies, media studies, cultural studies, whatever terms we use, but also across to climate science. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, we have to see this in the context of um, meta-processes like globalization and the spread of networked capitalism. Mm. And what it did, not only in terms of our paradigms and how we understand or how we understood issues uh, 20 years ago versus now, I think we have sort of more sobering accounts of globalization now than we did, say, in 1994, when we had this sort of heyday of uh, globalization and hybridity and all that, that kind of discourse. And of course, we need to place this uh, in, in, in the context of such meta-processes in order to be able to make sense of it and understand it, and also to be able to stimulate or inspire social change if that is the goal and Mm. as we said before of course it should be the goal what else Um, but of course we have um, (laughs) that this course is still alive and kicking you know consumerism and consumer research and putting the pressure or the responsibility on the consumer we talked about this yesterday Mm. as well Mm. how um, the consumer or the individual can make the difference. Mm-hmm. And you said yesterday, if I remember correctly, well, was that the Guardian? That the person of the year was yourself? The, the most powerful person in the media exactly. in 2013 mm-hmm. was you. Was you, exactly. It was me, it was you. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think it is, it is a very powerful discourse in terms of the ways in which... Um, the broader public understands environmental uh, degradation and, and climate change. You know, the individual footprint, the kind of difference we can make by changing mm-hmm. our consumption habits. And of course those are important and those are important aspects of um, public awareness that should be emphasized to be able to communicate climate change and, and make sense of it and, 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 and hopefully um, induce or stimulate social change. But at the end of the day, those are not enough. We need to change things um, much more radically and on a much broader scale than just the individual, or just you or me, or just consumption habits. Can do that. 
and only states can do that, absolutely. And when we look, when we look at the coverage of these issues, uh, again, to go back to what I did for this project that just ended about Arctic climate change, in, when you look at the Swedish media, for instance, you see that there is still an enormous trust in institutions, including United Nations, when it comes to um, mediated debates about climate change and, and, and uh, emissions, etc. What How we can do this is through institutions, including the United Nations. But if you look at the British media, as you well know yourself, we see a different um, story lack of trust in institutions or institutions such as the United Nations being bankrupt and not, you know, this sort of like fatalism, okay, it's basically there's nothing we can do through institutions, then what is left is you, is me, which is not enough to... Um, well, for all the bad things about the Swedish state, the fact is it delivers things that people want to them on a democratic basis by contrast with countries where there is greater skepticism or even cynicism about government. That's true. There's, there's, every there's greater trust in institutions and the state itself. Because they give more things. Yes, the welfare state is still there. Yeah. And once you dismantle the welfare state, unfortunately, it's almost impossible to get it back, which happened in the United Kingdom. Yeah. And you could say it's, it has reached a point of no return, yeah. in a way. And that also influences, of course, uh, public culture and public consciousness about state institutions and, and these processes, meta-processes such as globalization, commercialization, etc., and, and um, life on a day-to-day -day basis. So, so I would say those sort of these um, issues come up. So everyday climates are different here than it is in, in not that Sweden is not it, it, with its problems, of course, there are so many problematic things here as well, but... Mm. So your basic position when debates come up about the necessity for economic growth as opposed to the necessity for restraining climate change mm -hmm. is uh, not épater le bourgeois and let's have a revolution against capitalism or even a particular critique of capitalism. Your position, I'm assuming, is that the best we can hope for is regulation of capitalism by the state in the interests of the protection of but that is, and that that's where the climate scientists you work with can walk. It's where the bourgeois media can walk. It's where everyday people can walk with safety. That you're not compromising the entire project. You're saying it's a traditional sort of position. We can civilize capitalism again within right. the possibilities of state. Well, action. that's such a tough one. <laughs> I mean, you may not believe this personally, no. but that's the best you can get to. Is that well? I guess yes. That's what, I'm well, you, what you're what this boils down to. What you're saying is, well, not revolution, but reform, maybe. Yes, fast reform. Exactly. It's as simple as that, actually. Yes, it is impossible to dismantle capitalism uh, overnight and, and, and change everything uh, drastically, but at the same time, surface temperatures have risen. And we know what we know, especially when we talk to climate scientists. Unfortunately, we know more than we want to, perhaps, in how, how difficult it is to reverse, if it, if it is at all at all possible yeah, to refer, right. reverse things. So, um, yes, at the end of the day, I think what could be done at this point, I mean, we cannot do this without institutions, without the state, mm -hmm. without regulation, legislation, and enforcement. 
Now, what about different countries' experience of this? Some of the countries whose very existence is imperiled by climate change are microstates. Absolutely. Some are big, like Bangladesh. Right. What do you do when people who are interested in ideas of development, economic development, social development, say to you, or say to climate change mm -hmm. critics, this is all very well, but we want electricity and guns and cars and air conditioning and laptops. Right. And we want to fly around the world, like all of you do. Absolutely. What's and we say, well, and you also produce for cheap for us. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what we say to those countries. Yeah. And they say, well, you had your industrial revolution. It's my turn now, like India and China say, mm -hmm. when we tell them, well, you've got to reduce the emissions and, mm -hmm. and how can you argue against a position like that? And it starts and ends with countries who have been through industrial revolution and who, yeah. are, who have big footprints like the United States in other countries um, in the West to be able to make a change when it comes to this without really uh, compromising countries who are in need of change and, and, and basic needs such as electricity, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, as long as we have this, to put it very crudely, uh, me, me, me approach. Mm -hmm. okay. I still want to be able to fly. I want to be able to um, 15 Google searches a day, whatever, <laughs> which also produces a footprint, apparently. Um, I want these countries to produce cheaply for me so I can buy lots of gifts for my kid on her birthday. Where does it leave us? It's, it leaves us where we are, which is the point of no return. We, we are. Uh, we have ruined the planet. And there's no way of putting it, really. And that does require a little more than... Well, okay, when it comes to state um, and institutions and institutional processes and how we can change it, make a change there, yes, legislation, regulation and, and enforcement, and you could take a more sort of a reform-based approach there, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But in terms of our understanding, public understanding, what we need is not reform, but revolution, revolution. really. Yeah, there's no other way. I don't know how your timing is. I'm hoping for another 10 or 15 minutes. Is that feasible for you? Sure. Yeah, Absolutely. great. I wondered if we could go back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, <laughs> and talk about some other things in your career that you've worked on, written right. about, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, we've devoted most of this conversation, this chat, to the environment, but uh, you're involved in journals, you're involved in professional associations, you've mm -hmm. engaged in other kinds of research. Could, we, could you give us a brief picture of some of that so that people can right. follow you? Currently, or yeah, it can be the past, it can be the present. Well, I am one of the editors of uh, the journal Popular Communication, right. as you know. Um, I am the current chair of the division of ethnicity and race and communication of International Communication Association. Those have to do with sort of uh, different parts of my work. My involvement in popular communication has to do with the fact that I do deal with politics of popular communication mm -hmm. um, in my work. And I have done research on ethnicity and race and, and uh, transnationalism and migration. And that, that is to do with my sort of other hat, my involvement in that division as, mm -hmm. as the current chair. And uh, when I started at the University of Texas at Austin, I did both my master's and my PhD there. 
in my PhD, my doctoral dissertation was about, at the time, the EU's, the European Union's information society policies and how technocentric they were in an effort to compete with the Asia-Pacific in the, in the United States. So that was sort of like a more political economic analysis of what was going on at the time. Um, but those all, I mean, all those different aspects of my research over the years, I think, um, complemented each other mm -hmm. um, quite meaningfully, I would say. One recent um, project that also finished at the same time as the climate change one had to do with uh, surveillance at a subjective level. How do we deal with information and communication technologies on a day-to-day -day basis and deal with um, freedom and convenience that come with these technologies, but at the same time control and monitoring that are also embedded in those. And when we first started the project in 2008, there was little research about um, the subjective dimensions of this. I mean, surveillance has always been talked about in a more sort of um, broader scale, in a broader scale, yeah. and how um, top-down surveillance operates either, you know, state or military or industrial. But there was little research about how people or individuals were grappling with this, so to speak, how they were um, receiving. Mm -hmm. And we did a study based in Sweden looking at different factions of um, the society. You know, in Stockholm we looked at inner city people, middle and upper middle class, and also uh, people with migrant origins or lower middle class mm -hmm. uh, background living on the outskirts of the city. And Stockholm happens to be a very segregated city, actually, um, spatially. And we also looked at um, how people were thinking about these things in the rural parts of um, Sweden. And we sort of collapse it all to like a few lines as to the findings of the study. We could say, as expected, there was more awareness when you sort of increase the age level. Older people were more aware and more suspicious, less so when it comes to um, younger people. Um, and basically, one of the interesting things I think that we found as part of the study was the fact that people differentiated between external, what I call external and internal technology. In other words, they tended to think that cameras and camera surveillance was more of a problem than cell phones. Right. Because cell phones are almost part of your body, right? If you go back to McLuhan, sort of like extension of your, <laughs> whatever, extension of our everything nowadays. And it's something you carry very close to your body and you don't want to think about it as a surveilling or problematic device. Whereas camera surveillance, which is more limited actually in its capacity to surveil, <laughs> was seen more of a problem. And that was one of the interesting things. Things and, and when it came to social media, especially uh -huh. younger people tended to think about it as well. Yeah, okay, there might be surveillance, but it's a free service. So as long as my name is not attached to it, mm. as long as my data are used anonymously, then I shouldn't think too much about it. Because if I think too much about it, as many, um, at least quite a few of our informants put it, if I think too, too much about it, then I cannot communicate. 
What about the distinction? Was this drawn by them? Is it drawn by you between corporate and state surveillance? Corporate surveillance, well, state surveillance is seen as more sinister, mm -hmm. more wary, you could say, but um, corporate surveillance, and first of all, when we talked about Facebook, for instance, it's, it's a very sort of a significant and, and, and basic example that many people could relate to, obviously, since many people, especially in Sweden, use uh, social media and, and, and Facebook. Many people didn't even know, because very few people read those fine prints, you know, mm -hmm. terms and conditions which change all the time. Facebook's changed today. Yeah, I got notifications. Yeah, mm -hmm. and they change it all the time without mm -hmm. our noticing or without us paying much attention mm -hmm. to it. And, mm -hmm. and if you ask Facebook, they say, well, I mean, the terms and conditions, I put it there, read them. Yeah. But we don't. And that's why, actually, in Canada, for instance, uh, advocacy mm -hmm. groups are quite vocal and powerful. And they particularly argue for the rights of younger people, younger users, teenagers, because they're much more vulnerable. Even if they read it, to what extent are they able to understand what it implies, especially on a long, long term. Yeah. And statistics or studies now show that many employers, actually, in Northern um, America at least, are checking their prospective or potential employees. Sure. Uh, here I am throwing up. Here I am talking about taking drugs. Exactly. Here I am laughing at the misfortune of my last boyfriend. And it outlives you, right? The data yeah. outlive us. Yeah. And you do it at a you know fuzzy moment, but it's there. It stays mm -hmm. there forever. And it's impossible to take it down. And it has enormous implications, of course, enormous mm -hmm. social implications. Um, beyond its ontological implications, that very practical social implications that especially younger users perhaps are not so well equipped to mm. understand. Mm. And, but it is a social space and we are negotiating yes. it. And you guys have a book, right. Media Surveillance and Identity, right. that people can look for. Mm -hmm. right? right, yeah, we just published it last year. Details around research. This time. Edited by you and Andre Janssen from Costa University right. and him and myself were um, the researchers in this project about surveillance and how people are you know, dealing with this. And that was the outcome of the project. Right. Mm? I wondered if perhaps to conclude we could go on to the ethnicity, race mm -hmm. material that you work on and migrant issues as well. Mm -hmm. Because this is one of the biggest issues confronting Europe. Right. And that wonderful slogan from, I guess, the 80s in Britain that Afro-Caribbeans, I think, coined, which is, we are here because you were there. Right. 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 Which is frequently true, mm -hmm. though not true in all cases of migration. I wondered if you could share with us a little of the interests that are propelling you at the moment and in your past. Mm -hmm. when it comes to questions of race slash ethnicity slash immigration? Mm -hmm. Well, my research in that area started with my interest in mediation and, and how mediation sort of took shape in those circles. Mm -hmm. and what was stimulating or provoking in some sense was mm -hmm. the fact that I, there was quite a bit of research, as I discussed with my colleagues, um, along the lines of um, mediation is 
a substitute for what you're not getting offline or, or, or in physical terms. In other words, contrasting and comparing the virtual and the real, which is quite problematic. And that's one of the things that we dealt with actually in this other book, um, Online Territories, which is also the subject of the current special issue of uh, popular communication that myself and Gavin Titley guest co-edited. Oh, did you? His, his work's great, isn't it? Absolutely. He's a really, really smart yes, guy. Yes, he's a very smart guy and it was a pleasure to work with him. I'll bet, yeah. Yeah. Um, he must, he's got to be online to be a victim of the pod, I think. Don't you think it'd be fun to have him in the pod sometime? Oh, yes. Maybe I should drag two of them together. Anyway, yeah, so, that would be really so great. Just, so that's, that, yeah. so I can sort of take it like a, you know, retrospective, I mean, yeah. the, the, the current issue has to do with the, uh, technology and the question of empowerment mm -hmm. and we were both discussing and were provoked by research sort of ignore I mean as I said contrasting and comparing the actual and the virtual as David Morley puts it mm -hmm. in, in a very meaningful way I, I think not mm -hmm. virtual and real but virtual and actual um, the virtual obviously also being actual and, and, and vice versa that separation of the words or that distinction not being meaningful. Um, and my work had to do with looking at my people of migrant background living in Stockholm. And as mm -hmm. I said earlier, um, Stockholm happens to be a very segregated city, right. like many other big cities. Um, most people of migrant background live out on the outskirts of the city. So what I did there was to look at how they were using the media, traditional media, mm -hmm. and also um, online or, or uh, sort of virtual media. But the perspective I sort of tried to promote there or, or try to employ was the fact that we needed to look at it in relation to actual space, not only in terms of mediation mm -hmm. or not only in terms of mediation de facto equals empowerment, which is mm -hmm. obviously not the case. And yes, of course, this has many implications. In, in, many case, in many cases, it becomes a tool to reclaim the city or their positioning in the city through mediation, right. but it's not de facto empowerment. It's far from it, and we cannot you know, overlook that aspects. Mm -hmm. In our special issue uh, with Gavin that has just been published this month, sort of a few years discussions between him, uh, myself and him about uh, these issues and how it has been covered in, in, in ethnicity and race scholarship. And of course there's also great research uh, indicating or pointing to these issues that we are trying to put in the limelight that we need to um, look at the virtual and the actual in, along the same axis, not as separate issues or one being a substitute for the other. Um, but it does happen to be the case that there's research that I would label reductionist or sort of missing the point or putting too much emphasis on mediation and media or to the media-centric whatever mm. label you might want right. to employ. Right. And this uh, special issue has to do with that. That's great. Mm. That's great. And in general, when it comes to trying to think through these questions of ethnicity, difference and so on. What's your orientation? What's your take? What's your dynamic? What is animating you? What's your theoretical apparatus or political relativity? 
well, when we talk about these in the Swedish context, actually, it's it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting case because you cannot talk about race, right? It doesn't exist in the official sort of discourse. There's no race, but you know, racism or racisms, it is very much there, but we don't talk about it in race terms. Mm. Uh, it's not, it's not there. It's not um, publicly comfortable for people to reflect on. Nevertheless, if you look at the recent election results, Sveriges mm -hmm. Democrats, the, the, the far-right party, got 13% of votes and became the third biggest party. Mm -hmm. So that's in a country where no, there is no talk of race. That, that's an interesting one. But, I mean, we see similar trends in, in, let's say, in the United Kingdom as well. So the culture and cultural difference masking or... Um, a substitute for race, racism, right? So we're, we're not talking about race, we're not racist, we're just talking about cultural difference. And sure. that is <laughs> that sure. is very appalling and, and very... Um, well, let's not forget that some of the first mobilizations of the discourse of minority rights were by the Nazis talking about Germans in Poland. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, of course, you could, could go back to that as well. But I think... There is very much need in race and ethnicity scholarship to sort of put race and racism and that debate at the forefront. And Gavin, amongst others, I think, does a great job of that, mm -hmm. sort of highlighting the fact that it's sort of like... Pushed aside. It is pushed aside, and um, not only in social theory in general, but also media communication scholarship, mm -hmm. we are guilty of that. So putting perhaps more emphasis on other dynamics or sort of um, replacing that terminology with other with other terms and other labelings which sort of um, problematically masks um, issues related with race and racism. Well, Niyase, you've given us a wonderful uh, grand tour d'horizon of so many topics, surveillance, race, the environment, Sweden, urban life, epistemological difference, methodological shifting, collaboration. It's fantastic to have spent this time with you. And I'm hoping that you'll come back to the pod, perhaps with your collaborators, as your work on the Arctic and related topics develops. Is that feasible, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.